Today's episode is brought to you by The Star Draft. Do you feel like you always know the Oscar nominees before they're announced, or wish that you could share just a bit of Meryl Streep's Oscar glory? Well, now you can. Experience awards season like never before. Sign up today to create or join a league at www.thestardraft.com. We share the, the same love, the, the love of film. And now what I'm about to say probably will stir up a lot of conversation around over the country. You commie, homo-loving sons of guns. It's not about you. It's about these characters. They are two of the finest gay Americans, two wonderful men. And I am greatly honored and tremendously moved. Don't let anybody tell you this isn't a terrific thrill. It would be a lie if I told you I didn't know what to say because I've been working on this speech for about 25 years. Well, it's my privilege. Thank you. And welcome back to this week's episode of Academy Queens. Faster, faster, faster. I am Joey Gentile. And I'm Mr. Gay Pride of the Upper West Side. I'm Brandon Stanwyck. And this is Academy Queens, your LGBT guy through the Academy Awards per decade per category. And the, the, these are the men of 2014. Holy shit, your opening was on point, sir. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm kind of jealous that I didn't choose it first. But funny thing, we had one of the rare times where we both had an opening from the same movie. Yeah, that surprisingly doesn't happen very often. It really doesn't. It really doesn't. How you been today? Um, all right. It's been a pretty relaxing day. I managed to take a nap today, which never happens. I'm not much of a napper, but I succeeded in falling asleep in the daytime for a brief moment. When you say you nap, I just picture you as like Maggie Smith putting cucumbers on her eyes in Gosford Park. You are a dame after all. <laughs> yes. I love how you had like the most relaxing day and I've like I'm literally still eating as we're recording right now. So if you guys hear some sounds, that's that. Um, we had the Academy Queens Film Club today on Zoom. Got off of that with that and then ran to the store, had to make some food really quick. And you text me like, Are we, you good? I'm like, give me 10 minutes. <laughs> mm. Just eating. So it's been you're, you've been relaxed. I've been hectic. But, you know, you know what we have together? Balance. <laughs> Yes, we also have a guest today, so right. why don't you tell everybody about the, our guest? Well, uh, funny you mentioned uh, dames earlier, because we have a real dame <laughs> with us today. Uh, she is a theater, film, and history nerd, a contributor to Next Best Picture, In Their Own League, and Broadway World. She is also the co-host of Petticoats and Poppies, a period film podcast we have with us today Nicole Ackman. Hello, Nicole. Hi, thank you guys so much for having me. Thank you for coming on. I have to say right off the bat, I am so excited that you're here. Because little <laughs> spoiler, little, little spoiler. I saw, for anyone who happens to follow you on Twitter, you recently <laughs> just shared your review of American <laughs> Sniper. And it was the greatest thing <laughs> I will admit there were a few of these movies to uh, watch to prep for this that I had been putting off for so long. And it was only doing this episode that I was like, damn, I guess I actually have to watch this movie. Um, and American Sniper was definitely one of them. <laughs> Do you want to tell the listeners who don't know what what your review exactly said? My letterbox review of American Sniper is simply no with a heart. <laughs> A polite no thank you. 
Truly. I, I will I will preface all of this episode by saying I have some controversial opinions, I think, on 2014 films. They honestly might line up with you guys, um, but I definitely don't agree with the Academy on a lot of things. And then I do agree with them on some things that may surprise people. Uh, but yeah, I... We we did the retrospective recently for Next Best Picture on 2014 films, and let's just say I got into some arguments with people. <laughs> it's not a great oh, year. It really isn't. It really isn't. Um, particularly for like Oscar nominees. Like, there's some great films from 2014 that just showed up nowhere at the Oscars, and then there are some films that I'm like, really, this? Yep. Um. Is that well? One of the questions we always ask our guests is why? Why did you pick the year that you did? Is that why you picked 2014? Is because you were getting prepared for, you know, your retrospective, and you're like, it just matches. Yeah, it matched up really nicely, and I was like, okay, I've already watched a lot of these movies like in this year, so it kind of knocked out some of them that I didn't need to revisit because I was already fresh on them, and I also knew that. There are some uh, some things that the Academy did that I agree with that, like, nobody else on the MVP team agrees with. Um, and so I thought that would be fun to discuss. I love a hot take. This is going to be great. <laughs> I've got plenty of them for this year. Yes. Well, Brandon, who do you think we're going to go for? Why don't you start us off? Sure. So uh, for Joey, I'm thinking Michael Keaton in lead and Edward Norton in supporting. Uh, for Nicole, I've been bouncing back and forth between Cumberbatch and Redmayne. Um, I think I'll go Redmayne and no, I changed my mind. I'm going to go Cumberbatch and Simmons. Um, Brandon, I know how much you appreciated Boyhood more than I did, and you did give Patricia Arquette the Oscar after all. So I think you're going to line up and agree with your Patricia Arquette nomination or win by actually giving Ethan Hawke the win here just for your love of Boyhood. Um, I would like a twist, and I think that might be it. Lead... Benedict Cumberbatch. Nicole? Mm, <laughs> you did say you do agree with some things, so I'm going to say you're going to go with Eddie Redmayne for lead. For supporting, though, I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to say Mark Ruffalo. I don't know why, but I'm sticking with it. Okay. All right. I'm going to guess... Oh, this is so hard. Um, I'm going to guess that you're both Michael Keaton guys. Uh, that that also feels like a safe guess right now, honestly, but I'll stick with it. Um, I'm also going to guess that Brandon's going to go for Ethan Hawke because I was looking at some letterboxed reviews uh, and noticed that he loves that movie. It's not cheating. It's not cheating, I swear. Um, but you know what? I'm going to guess... Uh, Joey, I'm going to guess that you are going to pick J.K. Simmons. First of all, for the record, letterbox, totally not cheating. I laughed at that because we have a listener who thought we were doing something for another year. And, and she was like, I'm watching Brandon's letterbox reviews. Come up. <laughs> They're all matching up to this year. So that's why I laughed at that. Oh, that's funny. <sighs> all right. Shall we? All right. Let's do um, it. Yeah. So your nominees for best actor in a supporting role in 2014 were... 
Robert Duvall, the judge. Ethan Hawke, boyhood. Edward Norton, Birdman, or the Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. Mark Ruffalo, Foxcatcher. J.K. Simmons, Whiplash. All right, let's start with our winner for the year, J.K. Simmons, winning for Whiplash. So far, this is his first and only nomination and win. Going into this, he was pretty much the undisputed frontrunner as he wins with the Golden Globes, BAFTA, SAG, Critics' Choice, the Indie Spirit Award, the Los Angeles Film Critics, the New York Film Critics, the National Society of Film Critics, and with the AARP Movies for Grownups Awards. In Whiplash, J.K. Simmons plays Fletcher, a very chill and easygoing band instructor <laughs> at a totally relaxed music school where there is no drama whatsoever. Nicole, how do you feel about J.K. Simmons in Whiplash? I want to preface this by saying that I think that something that influenced me was that I actually saw Whiplash for the first time this year, and I didn't see it before he won this award. And I do wonder if that's part of why I'm not crazy about his performance is because it had all this hype and then I saw it and I was kind of like oh that's it oh okay um I think it's a good performance but it's very one note it's feels to me very much kind of the same from beginning to end never once did I doubt that he was kind of just you know a jerk um and I kind of wish that he slid into that more and that we had a little bit maybe something different in the beginning but I just kind of wanted to fight him the entire film uh <laughs> I, he like brought up my mom instincts I was like I will fight you um but yeah I just kind of wish there was a little bit more variance in this performance Ooh, starting off the hot take I love it um, <laughs> I would agree with everything she just said actually I very much okay there's acting with a capital A, and then there's <laughs> acting with a capital A-C-T-I-N-G, which stays at that level throughout the entire thing, and that's what he's doing here. Now, that's not saying that it's bad whatsoever. It's not. But even in his in J.K.'s most subtle, quieter moments, he's so fucking loud, yep, and yep. it's... It's almost distracting. I will say if that is, if there is a negative to that, it's that. Um, again, I think this is good. I, I and I see why this happened. Um, is this though a loud one noter? Yeah, it is because we're not really given anything else. You know, there he might. There might be some moments as a viewer where like, oh, okay, maybe he is kind of nice with. Lots of question marks after that. Maybe a few ellipses. I don't know. Um, but he plays Dick really well. And, you know, love me some J.K. Simmons. Um, this is a lot, but it's not bad. This is a performance that um, lost a lot of its oomph with me upon this rewatch. 
Um, this was my first time watching it since um, 2014. And um, at the time, you know, it reads as very commanding and very uh, powerful. And that's because it pretty much is. I mean, J.K. Simmons is pretty much um, commanding every scene that he's in and dominating it because he needs to. That's the, the purpose of his character. And that's the um, that's the force he needs to be in the life of the Miles Teller character. And for the most part, that works. Um, He's pretty much at a 13 out of 10 the entire time. And that's kind of the nature of this character. Uh, But I will agree that the movie doesn't give you much uh, variety in his his delivery and his presence. Um, I think that's partly on purpose because we need to sort of fear him in the way that Teller does. I mean, this is a very abusive teacher-student situation. Um, I I can't imagine a person like him actually exists in real life, even at a super prestigious private music institution, because he's like a walking liability, literally throwing furniture at students and calling them all kinds of slurs. Um, So, you know, you have to imagine this movie takes place in a world of its own, uh, where things like that don't exist. And uh, he is a pretty, um, a pretty powerful villain in that way but i um i do concur with you guys that i wish we had seen a few different sides of fletcher in this movie we don't really get him um in a more chill state until the third act of this movie after he's been released from his position and he and the miles teller character meet at that bar and they have that one-to-one exchange um I kind of, that's one of my favorite scenes in the movie for this character, because we do get that different side of him, but also there's a very dark energy to him, because uh, it's a setup, because he's, you know, playing uh, the Miles Teller character, whose name I can't seem to remember right now, and, uh, you know, it all leads to the climax, um, where they sort of face off maestro Mm -hmm. to instrument player, and uh, it's pretty good. I, I don't think this is a bad performance, and I completely understand why it wins, but, um, it doesn't play as well for me five years later. It's exactly the sort of performance where I'm like, I'm not mad that he won. It's not one of those things where you look at Oscar history and you're like, oh, I wish I could take it and give it to this person. But at the same time, like, I'm kind of like, okay. <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not passionate about this performance. I also think part of that is that there's nothing in this whole performance that I'm like, wow, J.K. Simmons, like, I knew that he could give this performance as soon as I started watching the movie. I was not surprised or impressed in any sort of way. Agreed. I would say, like, I think we've all seen the original Spider-Man trilogy, so it was like we knew that he could do this, or even something like, um, oh, what was that show he was on? It wasn't The Wire, was it? No, Oz. The Closer? Oz. He was on Oz as well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So if you've seen Oz... You've seen Spider-Man. You know that he can do this. Now, we don't have any questions pertaining to him from anybody, but I have a question for you two, mostly due to the movie. The surprise best picture nom. Agree, disagree, or WTF for Whiplash? I get it. Um, I understand why it gets in here. It is a technically well-made film. Um, 
Chazelle knows what he's doing. And uh, this was sort of a movie of the moment. People were kind of obsessed with this movie and um, a lot of people still kind of are. So it doesn't really surprise me looking back that it makes uh, this best picture lineup, especially considering this is an expanded lineup. I'm not shocked. It's also, it's not the movie whose best picture nomination I would take if I had the chance to. I know. Like, there, there is, no one is going to be surprised. There's one that angers me. It's not that. Um, at the same time, like, would I put it in my lineup for that year? No. But does it surprise me? Does it, you know, do I wish it wasn't there? No, not really. <laughs> well, I would also kind of agree with both of you. I mean, I get it. Would it my person do it, though? No. So, <laughs> that's all. <laughs> so, uh, next we have Ethan Hawke, nominated for Boyhood. This is his second of two acting nominations and his fourth of four at, um, nominations total. He has two screenplay nominations in there. Going into this, he doesn't really win much of really anything major, considering Simmons took it all. But he is recognized with the Globes, BAFTA, SAG, Critics' Choice, Gotham, and the Spirit Awards. In Boyhood, Ethan Hawke plays Dad, a cool father who helps shape his son's development over time. So, Joey, how do you feel about Ethan Hawke in Boyhood? He's not like a regular dad. He's a cool dad. Um, That's instantly, for some reason, what I first thought of when when you said that. It's no (laughs) surprise what I was going for. Yeah, I got you. It also, too, when you said he, uh, J.K. took it all, I just heard, like, Meryl scream, the winner takes it all. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only one who thought that. <laughs> hey, yes, I like her. Welcome, Nicole. <laughs> thank you, uh, thank you. <laughs> it's no shock right now. I don't like boyhood. I'm a team Birdman person. Um, I was very clear with that when we talked about Patty last season. Um, but I did say, and I stick by it, that if there is something I do like about Boyhood, it's Ethan Hawke. Um, Ethan Hawke had an interesting couple of years here. You know, he quote unquote went under the radar with a lot of straight to video films in the late 2000s. He kind of had a little resurgence with a vampire film from 09 called Daybreakers, which is a lot of fun if you've never seen it. And then he popped back in to finish up the Before series and did Boyhood here and you know, I get it as as a person whose father was absent growing up and, you know, having a stepdad like, I, you know, I could see what he was doing and why he was doing it. And, you know, when did this come out? 2014. So what was I? 22 when this came out. So revisiting, you know, for Patty a couple months ago with um, at 28, I can understand his position as an adult now, a little bit more mature. And I think he brings a really good grounding to that. Um, I think this could have been a very unsympathetic character. And I think he actually makes you kind of tilt your head and go, ah, a little bit. So, you know, kudos to Hawk for that. He is, like I said, the one silver lining that I have for this movie. So um, I'm not mad at this. I'm, uh, I'm also not a big fan of Boyhood. I, I have some issues with the film, Ethan Hawke is none of them. Like, he is probably the most consistently good thing for me across the film's long runtime. And I think that it's impressive that he managed to keep his character seeming, you know, quite consistent over that time. And I think that he does a better job of that than 
a lot of the other actors in the piece. For me, he's easily the best performance in it. And like you said, he takes a character that really shouldn't be all that likable and makes him quite likable. And uh, he has a real arc, I think, from this sort of part-time dad who's not really in the picture to this guy who's kind of your standard dad character in some ways, just not for the main character, for, you know, for his new family. And I think that that's a really interesting arc, and I can see that, you know, this is a really interesting character for him to play. Even Hawk, for me, is very hit or miss in terms of me liking his performances or not. Um, it, it literally feels like every other film I, I see him in, I either like him or I can't stand him. But this one, I definitely like him in, and it's not a role that I'm super passionate about because I don't think that he gets, you know, a tremendous amount to do really in the movie, but I do think it's, it's a good performance. Yeah, I pretty much agree. This is a very nice performance from Hawk, who I'm also very hot and cold on. Sometimes he drives me crazy uh, with his yep. performances and other times I think he just <laughs> nails it here in boyhood. I think he's pretty good. Um, he paints a very uh, realistic and sincere portrait with this character. Um, you can definitely see an evolution in him, like a development in this character over time, almost like he is growing up himself, like his son is literally in the movie. Uh, he's becoming, you know, an adult. Like he starts out the movie as a literal adult and becomes, you know, responsible and uh, professional as things continue. So we get a little bit of um, a juxtaposition that way between um, the main uh, character and Ethan Hawke here. And uh, Ethan Hawke doesn't quite have as much to um, chew on, I guess, as uh, you could say Patricia Arquette does. Her scenes are a little bit more emotional and gritty considering the things that her character is put through. Um, Hawke's character isn't really put through things in quite the same way. His scenes are a little bit more um, compassionate and a little more heart to heart, and I'd say um, humorous um, by comparison. So uh, we get two very different types of parents in this movie, and I think they complement each other pretty well here. Um, like I said in our uh, episode where we talked about the actresses of 2014, this is a movie that um, grew on me with a rewatch, unlike um, Whiplash. When I first saw Boyhood back in 2014, I didn't really care for it. I was kind of over it uh, pretty quickly. And watching it again five years later, um, it hit me in a different way. Um, and it reminded me of my parents growing up because I don't have any memories of my parents being together. They split up when I was like two. And um, the paths they took are very similar to what we see here. Like I saw my dad on the weekends and holidays and he kind of was the cool dad. Like I don't really know what his life was like outside of the times we were together. And it seemed pretty stress-free and fun all the time. And that's kind of the vibe that I get here. That's like the, the figure that he plays in the lives of his kids. Like when his kids are with them, they're um, in this pretty carefree environment where they're able to have these philosophical discussions about life and manhood and all this sort of stuff. And uh, I think Ethan Hawke does a pretty good job here um, putting on a performance without feeling like he's performing, if that makes any sense. So I dig it. Yeah, I can see what you mean definitely by like he, he is an adult but becomes an adult. And I think that's why he's, again, doing good work here because 
his character, I feel like, could have been played like the stepdad that decides to drink and, you know, mm-hmm. have the kids write the check and buy the booze. Like, I feel like that's how we're supposed to, like, feel about this character if it was somebody else. I don't know if that makes sense. So I'm glad that it he really grounds this. He, he really grounds dad um, <laughs> because I, I think it works for him. And I think it does come across feeling very authentic and genuine. Um, And I think that that's impressive because I also think that this sort of character of like this, you know, somewhat absent father could come across uh, feeling a little bit put on, but he definitely makes it feel very real. Mm -hmm. Correct. He brings a a warmth and um, not in a phony sort of way that another Mm -hmm. actor might like if they're, like if an actor were intentionally trying to convince you that this is a, a warm and sympathetic character, it might read as false, but somehow Ethan Hawke is able to do it and make it seem very sincere. Yep. Agreed. Next we have Robert Duvall nominated for the judge. This is his seventh of seven nominations going into this. He does not win anything, but he is recognized with the globe SAG critics choice and the AARP movies for grownups awards. In The Judge, Robert Duvall plays Judge Palmer, a small-town judge suspected of murder and whose estranged son returns home to uh, defend his father in court and help save his father's reputation. So, Nicole, how do you feel about Robert Duvall and The Judge? I actually enjoyed The Judge so much more than I thought I would. And, like, I'm not saying it's a great movie. I'm saying that so many people had talked about it, like it was the worst movie of all time. But then I watched it this year, and I was like, oh, oh, that's 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 just an average film. Like, um, so I think that that also, I went in with such low expectations that it was very easy for this film and this performance to exceed my expectations. I actually like this performance quite a bit. Um, I like that we kind of get to see the effects of his illness and his treatment on him. Uh, it's more of a physical performance in some ways than some of the others in this category. Uh, it's in some ways like kind of your typical gruff old man character, but he's Robert Duvall, so he does it really well. Um, and it's a very unlikable character. And part of what I like about it is that I think that the film is okay with the fact that he's unlikable. Um, it doesn't try too hard to, you know, I think that it's one, it's a good movie in that it lets you have sympathy for his condition, but not him. Um, and I, I think that the best parts of this movie are easily the scenes between Robert Duvall and Robert Downey Jr. They do have a very good father-son chemistry on screen. Um, and those are, you know, the film in some bits is a bit boring. Um, and then they'd have a scene together and be like, oh, okay, I'm awake again. <laughs> um, so I was I was really surprised by how much I liked this performance, actually. Who is what? What is why? Why is how? These are the type of questions that I think about when I think of the judge. <laughs> it, it's such... I remember when this movie was getting ready to come out, and it was on a lot of people's Oscar radar, like, people were like, Robert Downey Jr., Vera Farmiga, which, by the way, justice for Vera Farmiga in general, but I feel like <laughs> she's really underutilized here. Mm-hmm. Um, Robert Duvall, 
uh, I'm sure there's someone else named Robert in the crew, just all the Roberts. And <laughs> I went into this movie the first time back in 2014, and I and I came out of it very puzzled because I didn't like how it made me feel, but it wasn't like a feeling that I hated. And that's what I mean, like who is what, what is why, why is how. Um, I'm just kind of like all over the place with it. Like I don't think it's again. As Nicole said, it was, it's not, like, one of the worst movies I've ever seen, but it's also not one of, like, the best movies I've ever seen. But this type of nomination feels very campaigny compared to very performancy, which is, like, I remember a lot of the um, the ballot voters, like, that EW does and where they're, like, you know, I, you know, the Academy voters are like, well, I voted for this person, I voted for this person. And there were a lot of Robert Duvall votes because the sentiment was this could be his final chance. So is this a nomination that for good work or is this a nomination because he's old and Robert Duvall? That's where, what I end up asking myself. I guess I just got to leave it with an okay. Yeah, that's kind of where I am with it. Um, I love that you like it, Nicole. I'm very happy for you. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I, I'm going to try to keep it focused on Duvall because I have some very sour feelings about the movie itself that really rubbed me the wrong way. But I think uh, Duvall is doing pretty well here. He plays the uh, cantankerous old man bit pretty well. Um, I also really do admire his uh, scenes with Robert Downey Jr., I find it very believable that these are two people who could hate each other, a father-son relationship that could be quite as tumultuous um, as it is on screen, um, just because they have two very different vibes as performers, Duvall and Downey Jr., and I can imagine these two, if they were related, really just going at it all the time. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if Robert Downey Jr.'s style literally pissed off Duvall in real life, and we're seeing two very... <laughs> Uh, contradictory styles fighting each other on screen and Duvall being actually pissed off. I don't know. Maybe I'm just reading too much into it, but um, Duvall does pretty well here. Um, I think he plays the quieter moments pretty well. Uh, this is a character who is given a lot of loud screaming scenes, you know, when he's angry with his son and when like people don't believe him because he doesn't fully believe himself and then he kind of does and it's he goes through a lot of um, ups and downs and questioning of himself in this movie and I think Duvall um, excels in those more introspective moments um, but it's hard to you know pinpoint them uh, sometimes because the movie focuses so much on him being you know the loud and cantankerous old man so um I think it's all right. I think Duvall's doing okay. Uh, the movie plays like a... It feels like it's from another time, to be honest. Like, this feels like a, yes. fa a family courtroom melodrama that you would see in, like, the 50s. And considering it's, like, two and a half hours long for some god-unknown reason, it really feels like it's from another time. Um, but, yeah, I think Duvall's doing okay, and... Uh, also, Justice for Vera Farmiga. I would imagine she had more to do. I feel like there were some scenes cut with her. I feel like she had more. It feels like there's something missing. But um, she's pretty good as well. I also think, for me, sometimes there is that thing of whenever an actor gives a good performance in a bad movie, I'm, like, maybe more impressed. Because uh, it just seems like, okay, yeah, how hard it is, is it really to give a 
decent performance in a good movie. Um, whereas he's able to make something with some of his scenes in this that I think a lesser actor wouldn't have been able to tease out of this character. Um, because, you know, it, it's not a great movie. I don't even know that I'd call it a good movie. Um, it's not the worst movie ever made, which is how I feel like people sometimes talk about it. But it's like you said, it feels like a movie that would have been made in like the 50s or 60s. And he manages to actually do something with this role. So I think that's maybe why I I liked it as much as I did. Well, we have a comment about this film from Jackson Stefano is now the Pumpkin King. And he he says, why is the judge here? No one saw the judge. No one remembers the judge, period. So because I, there's always got to be that one performance that's nominated that everyone later is going to be like, what movie? So as you can tell, he's a fan. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all we have there. I, I think, honestly, though, the answer to that question is because he's Robert Duvall. Mm-hmm. Yes, like, that's, that's, what that's I meant. the stuff. You know, in mm-hmm. the same way that sometimes, like, why was Meryl Streep nominated? Because she's Meryl Streep. Like, yeah. yeah. I honestly didn't realize he had seven nominations with this mm-hmm. one. Like, I thought he had four. Like, if you had asked me to, like, state his nominations, I probably would have come up with four. I'm like, that's it. And I would have been pretty positive that was it. I didn't realize until I was doing homework for this that this is the seventh. So I can see how there could have been a lot of um, support for wanting to get him, you know, that one more nomination or possibly even a win, you know, from that sort of faction of the Academy. Well, it's crazy, too, because if we end up lasting to the 70s, because we always say, like, with the show, like, Brandon and I are going to stop if we ever get truly bored with this or, you know what I mean? Like, we just do this for, you know, to do it. So if we make it back to the 70s, we have to review this dude all the way up to 1972 with The Godfather when he got his first. (laughs) So this is the beginning of a possible very long road of Robert Duvall nominations. Well, let's buckle up now, I guess. Yeah, get used to him now. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Next, we have Edward Norton nominated for Birdman. This is his third of three nominations. Going into this, he, on paper, looks like the person who could have beaten Simmons if it was going to be someone. He wins with the National Board of Review, which is a pretty big one, and he's part of the SAG Ensemble win. So he doesn't win an individual uh, trophy at SAG, but the entire cast does, so I guess that's something. And he's also recognized as a supporting player with the Globes, BAFTA, SAG, Critics' Choice, and the Spirit Awards. In Birdman, Edward Norton plays Mike, a persnickety actor who comes in as an 11th hour replacement uh, right before a Broadway show is set to open and much drama ensues. So, uh, Joey, how do you feel about Edward Norton in Birdman? So, remember what I just said with uh mr jk simmons how there's acting with an a and there's <laughs> acting with an a capital a c t i n g okay here we go again this is acting with some fossy fingers and <laughs> uh, capital a c t i n g but what he's doing here compared to simmons is that like we're getting him I feel in a full range of emotion where Simmons is just very like loud and brass and mad all the time. This dude is fucking insane. He is such the method actor to where it's almost kind of parody because of Norton's um, personal 
history and the way he works and people kind of explain working with Norton as this character is, um, you know, obviously everyone's always like, well, what stands out the most is that tanning bed scene where, you know, he's in his skivvies and he like, you know, gets into a, a physical tussle with Michael Keaton and, um, you know, it's, it's really good. Um, I see why this is here. Um, I have no complaints, but this, like I said, is acting with all capitals and Fosse fingers. And like, this is every emotion in the, his gauntlet in his back pocket for the whole world to see. And he doesn't give a damn who's, you know, hates it or loves it. I'm into it. Um, this is probably my hottest take on 2014, which is that I really don't care for Birdman. I don't like this movie at all. Um, and he's a big reason why I don't like it. I, I can't remember the last time I hated a character this much. I just find him completely uninteresting. And I'm not saying it's a bad performance per se. Like, I do think that he's doing some good work. I also can't quite get past, like, the irony around him playing this character, but I almost wish that he'd either, like, dialed it up a little bit more camp or taken it down a little bit more real because he's kind of in, like, a almost in-between state where I'm not really sure what I'm meant to be getting. Um, and I know that, like, I'm a little bit influenced just by how much I hate this character uh, on his performance, but I just don't find what he's doing to be interesting and like his scenes in the movie are my least favorite scenes in the movie yeah <laughs> and i'm sorry i know there's so many people who are a fan of this performance but i just can't do it <laughs> no i get it um it was kind of funny when i saw that you were you know our contributor to broadway world i was like she's either gonna love birdman or she's gonna hate it with a fiery passion and i've been yep, eager to I, hear i hate it with a fiery passion <laughs> yeah um, I kind of agree with both of you. Uh, Edward Norton is definitely acting here, but the reason I'm able to forgive it more than Simmons is because of who he's playing. Like mm -hmm. he's sort of given this actor character to sort of actor with, and you know he's going through all the stereotypes of the difficult, uh, very serious actor, and um, playing it up for comedy, or at least it's shot for comedy, and. Um, I kind of dig it in a certain sense, uh, but I also see what Nicole is saying. It either, at times it feels like it either needed to be even more, like he had to go to like a J.K. Simmons level, mm -hmm. or he had to ground it and really be like Daniel Day-Lewis, you know? Right. I also think there's some things that are played for comedy in this film with his character that I don't really agree with being played for comedy. Mm. Um and I think that also influences how I feel about his performance is I'm so turned off by some of that, that it kind of ruins the entire film for me. Uh, yeah. But like, I also can recognize that he's not, he's not bad. Like, and I know that so much of my distaste for this performance is just personal preference. Are you uh, referring to his scenes with Emma Stone? That, yeah. There's also the scene on stage where he uh, basically assaults his scene partner yeah. Um, yeah, I just can't stomach it. Yeah, I definitely get what you're uh, feeling there, because I kind of groan at those moments, too. And yet at the same time, I can totally see an asshole like this character doing that in real life. Yeah. 
So I'm kind of in a weird, tricky place with it where I kind of want to hate it, but at the same time, I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess that, that makes sense for this kind of asshole. So, um, yeah, he's kind of an icky character, and he definitely plays the, the difficult actor with a capital D pretty well. Um, you know, these actors that want to be taken seriously and they claim to be method actors, but they're really just assholes. <laughs> like, I know a few of those. I'm not going to name names while we're recording, but... I could. Names. After we're <laughs> recording, I'll tell you guys. Uh, I'll name one names. in particular. Um, but yeah, I I like this performance. Um, I you know I'm kind of where Nicole is in a very similar way. I kind of have mixed feelings on it, and yet at the same time, I'm able to rationalize why I'm able to rationalize my difficult uh, negative feelings with why it kind of works in the movie. So yeah, uh, that's where I am. I'll name names. I know you will. You live for the drama. <laughs> Do you ever have you, you guys have seen Happy Endings, right? Yeah. No. There's a great TV show that was way ahead of its time. Only lasted three seasons. It should have been on for 27. Called Happy Endings, and I can't remember the character, but there was this gay friend that would pop up that would literally just how he would say drama was just drama. And so when he said you live for the drama, I don't know. That's just what came to me really quick. Okay, we can move on by. So our final supporting actor nominee is Mark Ruffalo. Uh, this is his uh, second of three nominations. He's nominated here for Foxcatcher. Going into this, he doesn't win anything, but he's nominated for um, he's nominated at the Globes, BAFTA, SAG, Critics' Choice, and the National Society of Film Critics. In Foxcatcher, Mark Ruffalo plays David Schultz an Olympic wrestling champion who, with his younger brother, who's also a wrestler, joins Team Foxcatcher, uh, which is run by the eccentric and unstable John DuPont. So, Nicole, how do you feel about Mark Ruffalo and Foxcatcher? I was surprised by how much I liked this movie. Uh, On paper, it is very much not a Nicole Ackman movie, uh, as most sports movies aren't. But I was actually very impressed by uh, Steve Carell and Channing Tatum and Mark Ruffalo in this movie. And I do think that Mark Ruffalo grounds the movie in a lot of ways and that he's very obviously like the most likable character in the film. Um, You know, he he maybe you could say he like makes the most solid decisions. Like uh, I think he works really well as a foil for Channing Tatum in the movie. Um, And, you know, there's all these scenes where you do have his very, like, obvious concern for his brother and you get a great deal of affection between the two of them uh, in, like, sort of subtle ways. And it's not, like, his normal performance in some ways. It's definitely not his normal look. Uh, And I'm a big fan of Mark Ruffalo just in general. I really like his work. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen a Mark Ruffalo performance that I, like, hated. Um, So I, I really like this. And it's a very depressing film in a lot of ways and he's sort of a spot of brightness in it so i'm i'm a big fan of this performance who is what what is why (laughs) why is how okay i'm gonna keep this very short and if i guess it's not super sweet i really don't like this movie i find it one of to be one of the most pretentious films I've ever seen. It's so boring. 
even after just watching this, I don't ever remember that Mark Ruffalo is in this. So therefore, I'm <laughs> Brandon. Um, I have mixed feelings on Foxcatcher. Um, I find Bennett Miller's direction to be pretty is precise and tedious, but in a sort of distant and cold way, which I think sort of works for the movie. But as a viewer, um, I find it difficult to remain engaged for over two hours with it. Um, so I can watch it and, you know, see um, the strength in the direction on the one hand. But if I'm not specifically looking for those things, I'm just trying to, you know, kick back and watch a movie. Um, I find my mind wandering a little bit. Um, but Ruffalo here is sort of a beacon in, in this film. He's sort of like the emotional grounding uh, that the movie needs. Because, um, you know, Channing Tatum plays a bit of a, a bit of an Icarus type character. And I think he needs this older brother figure to sort of keep him um, on earth. And, you know, Steve Carell is, well, we'll get to Steve Carell later. He's doing his thing. And uh, Mark Ruffalo, again, grounds everything. And um, he's, he's pretty essential to the film, I'd say, in that way. And he plays a pretty um, realistic, uh, sympathetic dude. Um, he's probably the one who's the most relatable out of the three uh, guys that we have here. And, um, I mean, in the end, when he gets uh, shot, um, I actually kind of feel something. I went into this knowing where it was going because uh, I had seen it way back when it was nominated. But even watching it um, now, five years later, it still kind of like shocked me a little bit. Um, the sound effect of the gun is very effective. My dog freaked the fuck out uh, while I was watching this. So um, go Bennett Miller in that regard. Like I said, he's pretty technically precise. and He knows what he's doing uh, behind the camera and in the editing suite. But um, yeah, I think Mark Ruffalo is an essential uh, emotional um, lightning rod uh, that this movie needed. I will say of all these nominees, he's easily the character that I felt the most for. Um, mm. Like you said, that bit at the end, even though you know, like the whole point of this story that they're telling is that it leads to that. I was still genuinely shocked and like actually pretty upset. Um, and that's partially that like, I think he plays that scene very well. Um, and then, you know, everyone else in the scene also is, I, I mean, it feels a little bit cliche to be like, oh, the scene where somebody shoots someone else is the most engaging scene in the whole film. But it is like, I think, you know, especially for someone like me who I get pretty bored every time they show a wrestling scene. Um, but I, I do think that, like you said, he's I, I like that you said, he, you know, he's an emotional lightning rod that you kind of need in this film that you otherwise, I think, could get very, very detached from. Listen. I've, ever since I was in high school, wrestling is gay porn with spandex. This is not how I like my gay porn. And <laughs> who is what, what is why, and why is how? Yeah, uh, it could have been hella gay. Um, I'm not sure. I don't know Bennett Miller's personal life. I don't know how he identifies uh, orientation-wise. But... Um, those scenes could have been super gay. And I think that's part of his, um, it seems intentional, this distance that he has from the story. 
I don't know if he was trying to go for this like objective style of shooting or what, but um, it sometimes works for the movie and uh, it sometimes doesn't. Like I said, I was I, I found myself disengaged a lot of the time as a viewer. And um, if it weren't for Mark Ruffalo, I don't know how often I would have been pulled back into the movie. I just realized I never had seen a picture of Bennett Miller and I'm looking him up now and he kind of looks like Andy Samberg with like a couple years on him. Pretty <laughs> uncanny to be honest with you. Oh, okay. Interesting. Um, we have a question about the supporting, well, it's not even a question, it's a comment, um, regarding this lineup from Nicole Schmidt 04. She just wants to say, I know his part was small and all, but Galifianakis deserved a nom just for his pronunciation of Scorsese in Birdman. So I'm not going <laughs> to agree with that, but that's what Jenny has to say. Oh, I'm sorry. Nicole has to say, Jesus, Jenny. Oh my God. Hi, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> Any, anything else before we move on to the uh, leads? I will just say my personal lineup from this year and the Oscar lineup are two very different things. Agreed. All right. Well, moving on to lead actors of 2014, there uh, the nominees were Steve Carell, Foxcatcher. Bradley Cooper, American Sniper. Benedict Cumberbatch, The Imitation Game. Michael Keaton, Third Man or the Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. Eddie Redmayne, The Theory of Everything. All right, let's start us off with Michael Keaton as Riggin and Birdman. This is his sole nomination. Uh, going in Oscar nights, pretty big contender. Wins at Spirits, Golden Globe for Actor in a Comedy. Wins National Board of Review in a tie with Oscar Isaac for Most Violent Year. Wins at SAG for Cast, but nominated at SAG for Actor. Nominated at LA Film Critics Association. And nominated at BAFTA. Also, too, Critics' Choice did their thing because they split up those categories. So he wins two there, actor and comedy actor. So pretty big chance of winning here. Um, again, Michael plays Regan in Bat- or Batman in Birdman. And he, it, it's about an actor who needs desperately a hit and a comeback. And he funds a vehicle on the stage that doesn't work out the way he wants to, but then it also works out the way he wants to. And it's kind of like the psychosis of acting with a capital A. Um, let us start off with its number one fan, Ms. Nicole. <laughs> so I know that I'm partially influenced by the fact that I just don't like this movie. I really don't understand what it is about this performance that so many people are so passionate about. I think he's good. I think he's worthy of a nomination, but I don't understand why there are so many people up in arms about the fact that he should have won, um, which is, yes, something that I ran into during the MVP retrospective. <laughs> I personally, it's not my favorite Keaton performance. I think he's good. I think what he's doing is interesting, but he doesn't really wow me with it. Um, very controversially, honestly, I prefer him in uh Spider-Man Homecoming. 
But, like, I'm not mad about him being here. I think he's good. I just don't, like, I really wish someone could explain to me why it is that people love this performance so damn much. Well, I don't know if I'm going to be able to explain it, but uh, I dig it. Um, I think Birdman gives Keaton a lot of really interesting opportunities. Um, it's also sort of an interesting character study, considering how meta this whole movie is. Like Edward Norton playing the difficult, quote-unquote, method actor. Keaton is, you know, a, a superhero actor trying to make a serious comeback. And um, so it kind of has that reflection as well. Um, I really like this performance. Uh, there's a sort of desperation to to it, um, how much he needs this production to succeed, um, not only to jumpstart his career and convince everyone that he's able to be a real actor, but also to convince himself, I think. I think he believes it. I mean, that's the whole reason for why he's behind it, but I think he, he there, this is the proof. And it all has to come together. And um, watching the way he scrambles and tries to put the pieces back together while everything is falling apart days, hours uh, before the show is meant to open is really fun to watch. Um, there's a scene in this movie that I find myself repeatedly going back to all the time on YouTube. I used to watch it pretty much every time I would write a review of a movie, I would watch that scene in the bar between him and the critic where he confronts the theater critic and takes her notebook and he's just reading the, the keywords and phrases and uh, he's shouting, these are just labels. These are just adjectives. You're just a labeler. None of this has any substance. There's nothing in here about craft. And then I find myself going back and seeing, did I just label things or did I actually write something of substance? So this movie helped me in that regard. Um, and also kind of like what this movie, ah, uh, I have mixed feelings. Okay. I'm realizing this as I'm saying it out loud. I kind of like what this movie has to say about art and how it's more than just surface level entertainment. Uh, but at the same time, it's kind of pretentious about it in a way because it's in Yuritu. And at the same time, I think it kind of works. Uh, kind of like with Bennett Miller's direction. Uh, this movie... And this movie's uh, statement and its style kind of come together. And even though I have, um, you know, things I could nitpick about it, it sort of makes sense in a really weird way. And I think uh, Michael Keaton is um, a huge reason for why the ride is um, so fun to watch. I love Birdman. I loved it from the time that I saw it in theaters. I've loved it in my revisits. I love this film as a performer. I think it it resonates with me a lot. I um I I it's one Birdman is one of those things where it's like life imitating art, imitating life because it is essentially the Michael Keaton story. Um, just like Sally Kirkland and Anna was the Sally Kirkland story um, that was actually happening to her at that time. This was actually happening to Michael Keaton at this time. I feel like this lineup in both categories, essentially the theme is comebacks because 
this is not the first time I'm talking about a comeback here in this episode. Um, it, it's a side note. Do you guys remember when everyone thought Keaton was a shoe in for that McDonald's movie? That made me laugh. Um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> regarding this, I just, I think he's, he's chaotic in the most delicious way. Um, I really, really like what he's doing here because it's so annoying. It's so over the top. He, He's like Simmons and Norton in the fact that he's always on a he's always on a thirteen. I think as Brandon said with Simmons when he has to be he should be at like at least a ten. Um, but I'm getting everything here with him like I do with Norton. I'm getting the whole gauntlet of life, of acting, of art. Um, you know who. <laughs> When where where else can you see Michael Keaton running around Times Square in his underwear and <laughs> just going giving me two scoops of Cuckoo Kachu and Sean Young just rolled up into one? I'm here for it. I love this. I think this is great. Well, we have a question from Is Butter a Carb? Did Michael Keaton really expect to win that? He had his speech out. I remember seeing him place something in his pocket when get, when giving Eddie a standing O. I mean, it was pretty much, as I recall, a race between Redmayne and Keaton. I mean, those were the two people people were mostly talking about. So um, perhaps he was a little um, bold in his assumption that it might be him. But um, I don't know, it, could, it could have been anything, I suppose, that he was putting in his pocket. I mean, yeah. I don't think that you can blame him if he did think that he had it in some ways. Like... There was a lot of hype around the performance. A lot of people certainly thought maybe he did. So, you know, it's not like, oh, why did he think he was going to get it if he did? Um, I, I'm like, wow, I need to go back and watch that clip. Uh, like you said, it, it could be he was put in a speech way. It could be something else. But what else would he have had? Like, what else would he have had out right then? Um <laughs> I mean, it certainly, he definitely thought he had a good chance at it, and it must have been a disappointing moment. Yeah, I mean, this was a race. It was a neck-and-neck race between him and Eddie, and I do remember that moment. I'd actually made the news cycle over the next couple days because people were like, what is that? So I understand why this question was asked. Um, I don't know. I, I do find prepared speeches, though, to be a little pretentious, for sure. I just also find them to be very disingenuous. Um, like, you're so prepared that you have a speech written down. Like, no. Like, if I ever win an Oscar or, you know, or whatever, if I ever win anything, like, I just, you're going to hear my thoughts from my mind right then and there. I want, like, an Olivia Colman speech. That's what I always want from people. Like, yes. I don't want you to have thought about this before. <laughs> right. Like, God, when Patricia Arquette went through the cycle of anything whether it's the emmys recently or just whatever she's always pulling a speech out of her boob and i'm like put the speech away tell, <laughs> like tell me what's in your heart patty tell me what's in your heart people god it drives me insane moving on we have steve carell as jean dupont in fox catcher this is his sole nomination thus far um golden globe and sag nominated him for actor and that's about it in Foxcatcher, again, Steve plays Jean, who is, wait, how did Tina Fey say it at the Globes? A murderous billionaire, while Steve Carell is truly just a murderous millionaire. Um, 
little psycho, little creepy. Lot of nose job going on here. So Brandon, what do we think? Uh, this is a fascinating performance. Uh, I still don't really know how I feel about it because uh, Steve Carell is doing a lot. Um, I was getting some serious uh, Laurence Olivier vibes from this performance. Not always in a good way, but not necessarily in a bad way. Um, you know, he's got, you know, his prosthetic stuff going on and he's really leaning into it. Like he's uh, he's using that makeup to his advantage, I think. Um, this character uh, is pretty difficult to read. He has a very mysterious presence. And this is one of the reasons why I think Bennett Miller's direction sometimes works, because we're not really supposed to get this person. I don't think we're really supposed to be able to read him really well because the people around him can't really read him. Um, so he, uh, Carell and the film are sort of matching each other in that regard. Um, the way he speaks is uh, such a such a conundrum because I can't believe that it's real. And yet at the same time, this person was real. And um, I'd have to imagine that there's, you know, video of this guy, uh, the way he would speak and present himself. Also, the way he runs really creeps me out. Like, yes. Like his indoor running when they're in like the indoor like practice space and he's just like running around the room. His posture and his uh, his gait really disturbs me. So um, kudos to Steve Carell for that, because I didn't know I could just watch someone jog and be uncomfortable. But um, yeah, Carell's doing a lot and I don't I won't say I love it, but I don't I won't say I hate it because I am truly fascinated by whatever he's doing. I just want to say I literally have as one of my notes, the physicality of the part where he's running laps around the gym is incredible. I really admire this performance, mostly in that there were moments where I legitimately forgot this was Steve Carell. Um, I think that it's a big physical transformation for him, and it's also very different from his normal characters. I really like that he is able to kind of keep that creepiness where, like, I kept having moments in it where I was like, what? Like, I don't see this guy as a murderer. And then I was like, no, no, actually, yeah, I do see that. Um, I think that he does a very good job in that sometimes whenever you have an actor doing something like this, it's like, oh, that prosthetic is wearing them. But this feels more like, no, he's wearing that prosthetic. He's using this physicality very well to make himself this person. And I think you make a good point that we're kept purposely distant from him in many ways because he is such an enigma to the other characters even i'm also very grateful for the fact that they didn't try to make him a sympathetic character even though you get a good idea of like where he's coming from and maybe even an idea of why he is the way that he is in those scenes that you have with his mother um they don't try to make him likable in any ways shape or form and i appreciate that because i think that would be to the detriment of the film I think that, you know, you do get the sense though that he's a very, I don't want to say tortured man, but in some ways it is that, that he's got something weird going on inside of his head. Um, and I, I think I will say now, I think it's a shame that Channing Tatum wasn't also recognized for his role in this film whenever he really does carry so much of it and both Mark Ruffalo and Steve Carell get in. Um, but I, 
I really like this performance. Who is what? What is why? <laughs> why is how? What is this doing here? Um, I will also keep this short and sweet because I really just, I don't like this movie. It is, ugh, okay. I don't like the way he speaks. The running freaks me out. I feel like he's in my apartment when I'm watching. And maybe, maybe now that I'm saying this out loud, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe his performance is that fucking creepy. Yep. That it's making me feel those thoughts. And so I'll give credit there now that, now that I'm saying it loud. But I just don't see why this is here. Um, it's not my bag. It's not my cup of tea. I prefer my Corel funny. Um... I'm good. I just, I don't want to beat this up. I don't want to beat them up in general. It's just, I don't, this is one that is a conundrum to me on why he's here with anyone else who could have been in this lineup. It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. I, uh, I want to go back to what Nicole said about his likability. Cause I think that's really spot on because I never really for a second like this character or even feel sympathy for him even though we are given these impressions of how he came to be the way he is, um, whether it was abuse or just an enormous amount of pressure put on him uh, that ingrained uh, very serious anxiety or antisocial behavior or whatever other psychological condition he's going through. Um, so I think that's another area where the Bennett Miller's choice to keep things distant and cold really works because I think it helps elevate the overall creepiness of this character and it gives you some depth or a little bit of dimension to him even though we don't know exactly what happened in his life. I mean, this is based on a real person, so I mean, of course you could go into it in like Wikipedia or whatever. I'm sure there's the answer somewhere out there, but in terms of the movie with what we're presented with we're really just given um, a vibe for things. And uh, Vanessa Redgrave's presence here, I think, adds to that. I wish she had a little bit more to do, but I understand what she was representing uh, whenever she was around. And, um, yeah, not to beat a dead horse about it, but I think Steve Carell's Oscar clip should have just been him running. Like, that should have just <laughs> been the whole thing. And everyone sitting there at the ceremony would be like, yep, that that dude deserved it. <laughs> That's also, fucked up. I gotta say, it's one of the creepiest performances I can think of that doesn't veer into sort of a campy, villainous creepiness. Like, mm. he straddles that line so well of, like, you never question if this is a good guy or not. But at the same time, it doesn't feel overdone. It doesn't feel like he's hitting you over the head with it. Um, it's just subtle enough that you can believe that he would go through life. And no one would be like, that's a murderer waiting to happen. Um, but at the same time, like nobody's that surprised probably whenever he does, you know, really do something bad. Um, I, I just think that he does a really good job of playing that very specific type of like terrible businessman and like kind of screwed up person. Uh, but this guy's, you know, was, uh, and, and it's like, 
if you told me that character on paper and then you were like, who do you think will play him? I would never in a million years have said Steve Carell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Carell demonstrates uh, a, a certain level of um, confidence and restraint in this role that a hammier actor uh, might not and really play up a lot of the eccentricities of this person um, to the detriment of the film. And it really makes me want to see Steve Carell go dark again, uh, just to see what that looks like, you know, without all the prosthetics and stuff. You know, I just want to see Steve Carell go to that dark place, whatever that is. I really wish someone would, if someone's listening and they're really good at this, please do this and then send it to us. I wish someone would edit Carell's running into the scene and get out where that guy is running at in the backyard. <laughs> because that's fucking terrifying. Oh my god. I'm glad we at least enjoy his running. That's fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have a question from uh, Liz Burchuk. Should Steve Carell have gone supporting and knocked out Robert Duvall and this opening up a spot for Jake G? Nicole? I do struggle with this, and it's actually a friend of mine, whenever I told him I was watching the movie, was like, what do you think? Is he supporting or lead? And it's a hard thing because, like, yes, he does have a lot of screen time, but at the same time, it's not his story. Not really. I don't think, like, it's narratively figured around him and we're kept so distant from him that it's hard to feel like he is the lead he is the main character um to me i would say like channing tatum is the lead of this movie but at the same time i don't want to say that it's like egregious uh you know putting him into a category where he doesn't belong um i can see where it could go either way personally i probably would put him in supporting yeah, I don't consider it egregious either, but it is definitely questionable. Um, Channing Tatum is more the traditional lead of this, or at least what we would consider a lead. It's mo- more so his story. Um, but uh, John DuPont has a very big presence in this movie. He's um, super essential uh, to the story and where it goes. And he's pretty much in the entire movie from start to finish. And he's a huge uh, factor in uh, how this movie ends. So is he doing enough? Is he in enough to be considered a co-lead? Perhaps. Um, Of course, we get to the rankings, you know, you'll hear uh, how we feel about that uh, more so. But I don't find it as egregious as some other people might. I also think it's one of those hard things where, like, were he a uh, female character and being played by a woman and in that category, I would have no issues calling him, like, a, a lead. And I think that that's, like, something that I'm always trying to be aware of with myself is I'm, like, I think there's this idea that a film can have a lead of each gender and that's it, um, which is dumb. Um, and I do think that, like, in that way, I'm like, yeah. Okay, I think it's fair to say he's a co-lead. Um, he, we've certainly had many, many, many people in this category in a film about a woman, you know, with a female main character who were less of a lead. Um, so, yeah, I like I'm not bothered by it. I just don't know that it's a decision that I would have made personally. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, to just go off of everyone here with the word of the day being egregious, I don't know if this would be egregious in the realm of, like, Anthony Hopkins in lead for Silence of the Lambs. Like, it's not like that. But I also ride the line of, despite my personal feelings on this performance, where would I put him? Also, you're just going to have to wait for the ranking. I mean, I can't give that away, but um, yeah, I could see it go either going either way, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. All right. We have Bradley Cooper as Chris Kyle in American Sniper. This is his third of eight nominations in total. Remember, those nominations also include his producing noms. Um, in American Sniper, again, Bradley plays Chris, who is the definition of the manliest man in America. And... <laughs> Okay, so in American Sniper, he plays Chris, who was a soldier who fought for his country, was killed, was a sniper, was American. So, Nicole, let's talk. All right, I'm going to just start by saying uh, this movie is in many ways the perfect storm for me in that I don't like Clint Eastwood, I don't like Bradley Cooper, and I certainly don't like pro-war movies. Uh, I don't really like war movies at all that are set after about World War II. Um, this is what the movie that I like. I was like, oh, yeah, I'll do 2014. That'll be great. And then I looked at it and I was like, shit, I have to watch <laughs> American Sniper. Like, I played myself. Um, and then I was like, you know what? Maybe it's not as bad as I've always thought it was. Like, maybe it's not as bad as all the reviews of it ever made me think it was. Oh, no, it's worse. Um, I don't even think it's a well-made movie. My favorite part of it was that fake baby. But <laughs> I don't like Bradley Cooper, but I can admit when he has a good performance. And, folks, this ain't it. Um, I think it's one of the weakest Bradley Cooper performances I've seen. He, he does a lot of, like, intense staring. And then the next scene, he does a lot of intense staring. And I'm like, okay, that's great, Bradley. Awesome. Um, he didn't pull any sympathy from me. He didn't have enough, like, charm either, which is weird, because I feel like Bradley Cooper typically is someone who can play charming pretty well in that first pre-war section to make me care at all what happened to him once he shipped out. Uh, so I was, I was pretty much like, is he going to die? Is, is he, is that going to happen? All right, that's fine. Um, I just, it's, it's even, I mean, it's hard for me with a movie that I dislike this much to even admit if there was a good performance in it. So I was kind of happy when I was like, oh no, I don't have to admit that. I don't think this is a good performance at all. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, speaking of comebacks, I love that the baby from Eraserhead, uh, was able to show up in a movie (laughs) three decades later and, uh, show us that he's still relevant. Um, (laughs) this is not a good movie. Uh, so, okay. My neighbor who I park next to has a Chris Kyle decal on his Ah, truck. Um, this neighbor also has a, you know, as you can imagine, a gigantic Trump flag and, um, a Blue Lives Matter lawn sign and another lawn sign that equates Joe Biden with child molesters. Uh, He's classy. And um, all these things, by the way, violate our HOA guidelines, uh, (laughs) but no one seems to have a fucking problem with that. Uh, But they did have a problem with my shutters not matching my door. Uh, Okay, never mind. 
Um, this movie is not very good, as Nicole was saying. Um, Bradley Cooper's even not very good here. I generally like Bradley Cooper, uh, but here I get no, I get nothing from this. I, I don't need to like a character in order to like a performance. I don't need to feel sympathy for a character in order to like a performance. But here, Cooper is simply doing nothing for me. Um, I don't care about this guy. I am not engaged with this movie whatsoever. Um, I know I'm very aware that I am not the target audience for this movie. <laughs> and this movie has its audience. And for them, this is the best picture of the year. Uh, it's not mine. <laughs> and... Um, you know, uh, that last question mentioned kicking out Steve Carell. Um, I, I'd be okay with kicking out Cooper here. Um, this is not his greatest turn. And um, I really don't want to reward the movie at all. So um, I think that's that's all I'll say for now. Who is what? What is why? Why is how? What I love to have a theme on an episode. <laughs> Uh, what is this what is this doing here the fact that american sniper opened up on like december 27th of this year and was such a box office phenomenon in this country in 2014 really looking back at it doesn't shock me with the way this country is now um the fact that the Academy seemed to just eat this shit up with this surprise-ass nom because Cooper had nothing going into this, which I think I forgot to mention, and this gets Best Picture nomination and yada, yada, yada. You know, I really didn't realize the Academy had this many Republicans in it. Oh, <laughs> it's pretty insane. I mean, this movie sucks. It's poorly told it's so clint eastwoody that it makes richard jewell look like minor like, colors a good film <laughs> i mean it is just such a play-by-play propaganda film for the right-wing people of this country that instantly Kyle, Chris Kyle's wife showed up at like the RNC in 2016 and like on Fox News reporter. I mean, it's, it's just so it's it's propaganda to the point where if you tell someone who loves this film, it's propaganda, they'll actually get so upset about it that it's kind of terrifying. Um, Cooper should have known better. Eastwood. No, just. And the Academy really should have known better here. Just girl, bye. Sorry, I was just going to say, like, I was reading some about this film because I was like, did Cooper know what he was doing? And him talking about how, oh, like, he promised uh, Chris Kyle's father that he was going to do justice to his son's memory and all this, like, made me actively dislike Bradley Cooper. Um, because I, my biggest thing with this film, honestly, is I'm like, I don't think this is a story that needs told. Uh, and if you were going to tell it, like, please don't tell it this poorly. I really thought I was trying to give it the benefit of the doubt. And I was like, oh, OK, like maybe we're actually going to go into 
uh, how poorly we treat veterans when they return from war and how much, uh, you know, the American government isn't willing to deal with them having like PTSD and all of these things. And then I was like, oh, oh, no, we're not we're not doing that either. OK, um, I just don't understand what it's doing here at all or what he's doing here. It almost feels like it's a disservice to all of the other good performances he has had to have an Oscar nomination for this one. Yeah. Uh, do you guys think John Voight was his campaign manager? <laughs> I so I kind of, I kind of want to um, echo a little bit of what Nicole said about whether this story needed to be told. Um, I pretty much want to say no, it didn't really need to be told, at least not in this way. I want to imagine that there is an interesting way to tell the story of this guy who has sniped the most amount of people on behalf of the military. I feel like there is an interesting character study to be explored there. However, in order to make it interesting and a good film, I would imagine it, have, it would have to be done in a way that his family would not like. Um, so I don't know if it ever would get told, at least, you know, not in their lifetime, but, um, I don't think this movie needed to exist as it is, but, uh, the, the kind side of me, uh, wants to say that it, it could exist in another form. I'm also, I'm fascinated by this idea of like, okay, what happened that, led to his demise in terms of like what was going on with this other veteran like how did this all come about because i think that that's a really interesting story that you could tell about men coming back from war mm -hmm. and the way that the american government doesn't give our vets what they need and all of that but the way that this is framed in this movie it, it feels so old like it feels like are we not past this as a society? Um, yeah. Tell me I'm not lying when I say if this movie was coming out last year, this would have been something that Chris Pratt, Chris Pratt would have been all over. Yes. Like Probably. he would have been like, get me that's wrong. Get me that's like, shut up, Chris. Um, I also, I have a question for you guys. If the baby from this gets into a fight with Renesame baby from the Twilight movies, but that gets to a three-way fight from the train spotting heroin baby, who wins? Oh, the train spotting heroin baby, definitely. I don't know. I might I might put my money on the Twilight baby. Right? With that, <laughs> Ebert's thumb wants to know, can a baby doll sink an entire performance or even an entire film? Um, this was already in the quicksand. Uh, it didn't need that baby to sink in. <laughs> truly. Yeah. If, if we had that baby in the movie, like, if we had that baby in the movie Boyhood, it wouldn't have ruined the entire film. Uh, this film was ripe for the ruining. Uh, you know, like, it was, though, after, like, there was a solid half hour after that scene where that was all I could think about. Like, I think I might have missed plot points because I was like, oh, my God, it really is as bad as everyone says it is. <laughs> Trust me, there's not a whole lot of plot here to miss the points. <laughs> You're not missing that much, I promise you. 
Um, does anybody else have anything on this propaganda machine at all? No, thank you. All right, let's move the fuck on. <laughs> Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, side note. Anytime I hear his name, I just think of that video of like how people used to like use him as a meme. <laughs> you, know what I, you know what I'm talking about where they would fuck with his name? I was on Tumblr at the right time as a teenager to know exactly what you mean. <laughs> oh, and one of my favorite versions of this, <laughs> one of my favorite versions I ever heard of his name was Come in My Pussy Snatch. And <laughs> the, every time I say Benedict Cumberbatch, all I think about it. Anyway, Benedict Cumberbatch. There's a Gyllenhaal interview where he refers to him as uh, Benedict uh, Cabbage Patch. And he goes on and on about how his grandfather founded Cabbage Patch Kids. Um, and that's all I can think of anytime I hear his name now, which is also ironic because, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, who should have been in this category. But, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, interrupting. Kind of but I just have to – Benedict Cabbage Patch. Oh, come in my pussy snatch. It's seriously my favorite thing ever. <laughs> All right, Benedict Cumberbatch is Alan Turing in The Invitation Game. This is his sole nomination thus far. Nominations from everywhere. Uh, Globes, Actor in a Drama, BAFTA, Critics' Choice, SAG, he has two, Actor and Cast. In The Invitation Game, again, Benedict plays Alan Turing. And it's, this is the true story of the man who broke Nazi code, um, invented computers. And, oh, by the way, he is gay. And the government of England at that time punished him for it um let's talk brandon so benedict cumberbatch is pretty good at playing these sort of cerebral uh very intellectual um characters uh it seems to be um, a thing with him and um you know imitation game is another example where he's doing pretty well at that um it's you know not something that i'm in love with uh it feels I don't know why, for me, it feels a little bit distant, not quite in the Bennett Miller kind of way, but uh, I don't feel for this character in the way that I think I should, in the way that I think the movie wants me to, and I'm not sure if that's an issue with me or if it's in the way this story is told and the way that it's framing the life of this person, um, because considering his historical significance and how you know he's one of the leading figures in how uh the nazis were defeated and considering his history uh or his um significance to queer history i feel like i should really be rallying around this character but for some reason i find myself not doing that i'm not sure if benedict cumberbatch is just sort of over cerebral ing here or what it is uh but in a sense i think it works considering who he's playing um but uh yeah this this one just doesn't quite hit right for me uh nicole how do you feel okay i'm about to like get all up in my history degree but <laughs> i have a lot of issues with the movie the imitation game and how it depicts alan turing None of those do I lay at the feet of Benedict Cumberbatch. I actually really like his performance. I don't like what they did with his character. I think Alan Turing deserved a lot better than this movie. But none of that's Benedict's fault. 
Um, I lay that entirely at the hands of the writer, honestly. I think he has remarkably great chemistry with Kira Knightley and with Matthew Good. Uh, like you said, playing intelligent assholes is kind of Benedict Cumberbatch's thing. And I think in this movie, we see that there's a reason for that. He is good at it. Um, this is kind of him doing what he does best. And I think there's some genuinely pretty moving moments. I also think he's incredibly funny in this film in a very unexpected way. I was not expecting there to be any sort of humor in this performance. And I actually do think he finds some very nice beats there. Um, I think it's very much not a one note performance, which it could have been. It's definitely like a little bit of a cliche genius role. But again, that's the script. That's not him. I think he does remarkably well with what he's been given in this film. Um, and it's actually like if anyone listening to this, listen to the next best picture review of The Imitation Game, you can hear me and Dan Bayer go on for like an hour about how much we hate this movie. But despite my dislike of this movie, I really like this performance. I really like Nicole that you're on this episode because <laughs> I can bounce off of you so well. <laughs> not saying I don't with Brandon, but you know, it's, there are some guests that one of us can bounce off really well and the other one can't. And I feel like I have you here. Um, <laughs> I don't have a history degree that I can point to, but I can also agree with that. This film doesn't really do Alan Turing the best of favors. Now I mentioned again, when we talked about Keira Knightley, I genuinely like the film, but when I say I like the film, that's how I have to take. And I suggest everyone taking this as it's not so much a biographical fiction tale, or I'm sorry, non-fictional tale, but a biographical fiction tale. Um, this movie is here to do one thing and one thing only, and that's entertain you. Um, this is not one of those entertaining, factual, I can now go on Jeopardy and do the Alan Turing category. You know what I mean? Like, it's not. Yeah. Like um, <laughs> so I agree with you, Nicole. This That solely goes to the writer and even Morton Tildum uh, to a certain point, I think, um, for the director. Now, Benedict, though, is wonderful here. Um, just like Knightley, I really enjoyed him in this. I think he is really funny. I think he's really heartbreaking at times. Um, there is so much to unpack of Turing. Um, you know, as a gay person, I, I do wish that, you know. Leslie Jones said it perfect, actually. I'm going to back up and circle around here for a second. Um, on SNL a couple years ago, that there's so much black history in this country that it is so fascinating that only it one month is really dedicated to it when we should be learning about it all the time. Yes, there is also so much gay history and for this country, for this world, just like black history, to where we don't know enough about it. And if you're going to be the man who was homosexual, who helped defeat the Nazis, break the code, and essentially invent computers, the very things we're recording this podcast on today. Um, I really want you to tap into that a bit more. And I think what Benedict does is that he does portray a type of gayness with this character, if that makes any sense whatsoever. I hope it does. Um, and what I mean is not like a flick of the wrist. I think there's, especially for the time period, you know, you had to be gay in code 
And I think he portrays that pretty well with just his interaction with the men versus, you know, the women he comes in contact with. Um, but as a story, I just wish it would have dove more into his gayness. Um, Benedict here is fantastic, though. I really appreciate him, what he's doing here. And I think it's really good. Yeah, I think this movie could have been improved if um, a queer director had told it. Yep. Um, like if Joel Schumacher had done it, or um, I'm, I'm realizing I don't think I've ever heard his name said out loud, so I might be mispronouncing it, but um, Andrew Hay, who did 45 Years and Weekend, I think he would have been really good for this, and uh, I think t- touring would have been done justice a little bit, and I think Cumberbatch's performance could have been enhanced in that regard. Um, yeah, Cumberbatch, I think, is doing perfectly fine. I don't, I know I didn't really say all that much glowing stuff about him, but I think the movie is really what's letting me down, and unfortunately, it's pulling him down with it for me, because I want to like this so much more than I do, but for some reason, I just have such a hard time giving myself over to this performance, because I have a hard time giving myself over to the story as a whole, I think. I think that's very valid. I also don't think that this is, like, testing Benedict Cumberbatch's abilities in any way shape or form like I think he's capable of a lot more than this and I think that had he been given more to do in this film he could have done more um but I totally understand how like you know the movie itself is a bit of a letdown so even though he's doing really well like how good can that ever really be understood Our winner this year was Eddie Redmayne as Stephen Hawking in The Theory of Everything. This is his first of two nominations. Uh, He wins at Golden Globes for Actor in a Drama, BAFTA, and SAG for Actor. He's nominated at SAG for Cast and Critics' Choice for Best Actor. In The Theory of Everything, again, Eddie played Stephen Hawking. This is the biopic depicting Stephen Hawking from um, early school to present day at that period. Because if I'm correct, I don't think Hawking's with us anymore. Um, I could be wrong though. Uh, no, he's, he's not, he, uh, in between the film coming out and now I believe he passed away. Gotcha. Okay. I didn't want to misspeak on that one. Yeah, I think I'm right. (laughs) So with that said though, Nicole, take us away on our final nominee. Okay. Um, (laughs) I really wish that Eddie Redmayne hadn't made the comments that he did, uh, earlier this week, R.E. J.K. Rowling. Um, because it does leave a little bit of bad taste in my mouth for how much I'm about to defend him and his win here. I love this performance. I actually really like this movie overall. I think he's really great. I think this performance is really moving. It's very transformative. Um, The way that he embodies the physical transformation of Hawking over the course of the film, and there were bits where I was just thinking about the fact that this wasn't filmed in sequence, um, and he had to keep track of what physicality he was at, in any given scene, um, I think is super impressive. I think that it is so clear that he did his research and that, you know, he, he talked about how he watched a lot of footage of Hawking at different points in his life um, and read everything that he could read and stuff. And I think that that definitely comes across. I think not only is he doing, you know, this great physical performance of someone going through ALS, but he's also giving like a genuinely moving and layered performance aside from that. I think that his dynamic with Felicity Jones is really good. It's unfortunate that they couldn't replicate that in the aeronauts. Um, I really love this performance. I know that that's kind of controversial when talking about this Oscar category, 
but I think he absolutely deserved the win. Um, so uh, as our uh, regular listeners have heard, in my development as a cinephile, I was never really an Oscars person. And it largely has to do with uh, films like The Theory of Everything. Uh, these types of movies just don't really do it for me. Uh, they're sort of that quintessential Oscar bait. Um, you know, these biopics about these very important uh, people and, you know, actors getting to play disabilities and all that to uh, great acclaim. Uh, but I will say that Eddie Redmayne is doing quite well here. Um, this is a very technically precise performance, as um, Nicole was saying. He's very specific in um, how this disease is affecting his, um, his motor skills and his body over time. And um, like a lot of movies, uh, this one's you know, not shot in order. So he would have to know specifically where uh, Hawking was at any given point. Otherwise, the, the continuity of um, the change in his body wouldn't make sense. Um, so Redmayne seems pretty um, zeroed in on those things. Um, and he creates a pretty likable, sympathetic um, character, even when Hawking is doing something a little uh, reprehensible. Uh, this movie doesn't shy away from, you know, his um, sort of torturous nature and um, him pining after other women and all that, which I kind of respect. I like that the movie wasn't just, you know, a picture-perfect impression of Hawking. As also because it gives Redmayne a little more to play with. He doesn't have to, you know, be this um, perfect role model scientist. Um, you see a, a, I don't know, bad side of him, I guess you could say. But um, the movie as a whole doesn't really quite work for me, just because this these types of movies just aren't my cup of tea. But I completely understand why it works and why it was so... Um, um, recognized with the Academy and why it has its audience. Um, so unfortunately, it's just, it's, I'm not part of that audience, even if I get um, why Redmayne won for this. Like I said, I feel like that's going to be a common theme, Brandon, in these, in the, you know, going backwards with the amendment. Like I said in this episode, um, I was not a fan of The Theory of Everything when it first came out. In fact, I really, really despise this movie. Um, upon revisiting, though, when it came to Felicity, almost said Felicity Huffman, uh, Felicity Jones, uh, I mean, she literally went from this year at the Oscars being my fifth spot to my runner-up after uh, revisit. That's how much my um, my mind changed on this movie. It works. She works. The score works. The cinematography works. Redmayne stayed okay. Um, there is something about this that doesn't feel like film acting, but it doesn't feel like stage acting. This isn't Redmayne having his own category of acting. I can't place where this acting belongs, but for some reason it doesn't belong on film. And that doesn't mean it's bad. Maybe this is acting that that needs to be done like live in person that isn't on stage, but like your level ground. I don't know. This just feels like it's it's in its own realm of something. Um, 
I think that it could be very hard to make a biopic. Like how the big short somehow made a movie about mortgages, even though I didn't like it. I think making a film about Stephen Hawking and math can be very, um, um, use some big word for big. Like it would be like, it's very (laughs) tedious. There we go. It could be very tedious. Um, it's here. It won. I don't love it. I don't hate this win. It is what it is. I do have some issues with the movie itself. My biggest one being that I watched it and still afterwards was kind of like, wait, so what did Hawking do? Um, which could just be down to the fact that I have uh, not a math and science brain and can readily admit that. But I, okay. I do think there's some issues with it. Honestly, the acting is what kind of held this movie together for me. And I think maybe that's also part of why I like Eddie Redmayne's performance so much is that it worked for me so well, even though I was sitting there like, Hmm, I would have done that differently. Why aren't they giving us more of that? Hmm. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very odd. And hmm. even thinking back to this again, 2014 is not a great year for Oscar in any category, but like this gets into best picture. American sniper got into best picture. Uh, Whiplash got into Best Picture. Boyhood's in Best Picture. Like, y'all need to relax. <laughs> All right. Well, I am combining three questions into one. So this is from Jeffrey Kerr, Kristoff, and Nick Cipriano. Considering how stacked the Best Actor category was, who do you think was most likely sixth place? Was it David Oyelowo? David Oyelowo. Thank you. From Selma, Jake Gyllenhaal from Nightcrawler, or Ray Fiennes from the Great, the Grand Budapest Hotel. And then combining that with Kristoff's, because that was the combination of Jeffrey and Nick, where is Ray Fiennes and why is the Academy only ever nominating him for Best Picture winners, a.k.a. Schindler's List? I would like to start with this one. Number one, how dare you not mention who should have been in this category and who should have won this category by miles. And that would have been Bill Murray and St. Vincent. Um, mm-hmm. Regarding Rafe, I haven't seen the Grand Budapest Hotel because I really don't like Wes Anderson's movies because they are all the same movie with different titles. And I just don't, I refuse to watch it. Um, yeah. So there's that for me. It makes me so sad because any of those three men that, those people named in their questions um i would rather have in this category than like half the people here uh (laughs) i it's hard for me to say who actually was six i want to say it's um rafe just because you know grand budapest hotel did get a decent number of nominations overall uh it would have been i think harder for jake gyllenhaal to get in um that said, like, I would kick Bradley Cooper out of this category so fast uh, to put any one of them in there. And and honestly, I'd, I'd, I'd keep kicking people out of this category, <laughs> as you might guess from hearing me talk about it, for any of the three of them. That it's it's hard for me to even, like, get a good estimate on who I think was genuinely sixth. But I do think just because of our overall love for Grand Budapest Hotel, maybe it was that. Yeah, I want to say, for some reason, realistically, it was probably Fines, uh, 
who I think is quite good in Grand Budapest Hotel. I'm not the biggest Wes Anderson fanboy, but um, I think he's pretty good in that film, and I would have welcomed that nomination. Um, I know Gyllenhaal is sort of film Twitter's sixth place. <laughs> uh, realistically, though, I'm not sure how on the radar it was um, for the Academy. Um, I believe it got – didn't it get some technical – Stuff. I think it got screenplay and that's it, right? Yeah, so it was that Gyllenhaal got everywhere for Nightcrawler. Like he got an everywhere for best actor. Mm-hmm. So he might have been closer though than Rafe because Rafe only got the uh the Golden Globe. I just feel like Rafe fits in more with what they nominated, if that like makes sense. That's where I am, too. Jake's performance feels very much like a critic's performance to me, uh, and less like an Academy one. Understood. That's kind of where I'm coming from, too, with my reasoning. Uh, Jake, for some reason, feels more like, you know, the Tony Collette's in Hereditary and Ethan Hawke's in First Reformed kind of performances that um, get beloved pretty much across the board, and then for some reason the Academy just goes, eh, and doesn't nominate them. So I have a, for some reason, I have a feeling that uh, Fines was more on their radar. I just have to wonder also if, like, is there something in the Academy against Jake Gyllenhaal? Because I there are performances that are ignored that I'm like, do they just not like him? Um, Poor man bottomed with a belly full of beans and nothing but spit and has only <laughs> come out on the top with one nomination in total. Mm-hmm. Sorry to that man. <laughs> really? <laughs> right. <laughs> no, but hello, nobody else. St. Vincent, hello, Bill Murray, nobody. He's uh, fine. I, just, I don't know that he was, I don't know that he was on their radar. Yeah. Critics' Choice. Like, nothing Lola, against him shit. specifically, but. I will say, because we don't, we'll never get to talk about it. I loved that year because St. Vincent was one of my favorite movies. And I actually remember seeing that movie. And being like, oh my god, if I th- like I was like, this is Bill Murray's year finally. Like here it is, and nothing. And I was really sad too because I thought Naomi Watts was fantastic in that, and I love that SAG did the right thing and nominated her, but she didn't get in anywhere else. Yeah. People need to revisit that. Okay. Anyway, um, anything else before we uh, do our rankings? Just oh. again at the Academy, what the hell were you doing this year? <laughs> At the Academy, Nicole. At the Academy. (laughs) And Queens, before we get to the rankings, a word from, well, me and our sponsor. Have you ever wanted to share a bit of the spotlight with, I don't know, Meryl Streep, Jessica Lange, Angela Bassett, and maybe hopefully one day someone like Aquafina, or play a game where Daniel Kaluuya is on a team? Well, this year, Queens, you can, thanks to today's sponsor, The Star Draft. As the listeners already know, Hollywood Awards season is finally almost almost here and god knows it's a long one this year and the star draft lets you be a part of it like never before what is it though well i'll tell you it's a little like fantasy football i don't know what that is but i do know that it meets the golden globes and i definitely know what that is and here's how it works head to the stardraft.com to create a league to invite friends or join a public league to make new ones draft a team of 10 actors and musicians musicians who are actors or actors who happen to sing i don't care how you do it just do it do you think olivia coleman is going to sweep every awards show this winter Draft her. I know she did the last time. She did really, really good. Hashtag the favorite. Before every nomination and award show, set a lineup. 
Every time your actor or musician earns an accolade, they earn your team points. Then sit back, relax, watch the awards ceremonies as you, I don't know, drink a beer, eat some nachos, fight with your grandma. I don't care, but rehearse your acceptance speech. The site's top scoring team at the end of Oscar night earns a cash prize. Hey, you may not walk away with an Oscar, but you will walk away with cash in your pocket. It's 100% free, and because we love the Star Draft and you all so much, well, most of you, we've created a public league that you can join right now. Seriously, join us. All you have to do is sign up and join our Academy Queens League at thestardraft.com. That's www.thestardraft.com. We look forward to beating you all award season long and probably beating you more than others. Love you guys. All right, Brandon, take us away. So as a reminder, your supporting actor nominees were J.K. Simmons in Whiplash, Ethan Hawke in Boyhood, Robert Duvall in The Judge, Edward Norton in Birdman, and Mark Ruffalo in Foxcatcher. I'm putting Robert Duvall at number five for The Judge. I think he's perfectly fine, but I don't know that this performance was really stretching Duvall in any particular way. And the movie just kind of rubs me the wrong way. Uh, so Duval is my number five for The Judge. I'm so sorry to the Birdman stands, but my number five is Edward Norton. I There's nothing I like about this whole performance. We all could not be more different because my number five is Mark Ruffalo. I actually <laughs> forgot that he was in this movie until it was time to rank. So there's that. My number four is going to be J.K. Simmons for Whiplash. Um, I think J.K. Simmons is great in general. Um, he's one of those actors who just pops up in, thing, pops up in things, and he's always welcome uh, whenever he shows up. Uh, here in Whiplash, though, this movie, um, the performance kind of uh, went down a few notches uh, for me upon this rewatch. I was more into it um, during this Oscar season than I am now. I just want a little bit more variety in the performance. And I know that has a lot to do with the writing and direction of it. And that's not entirely J.K. Simmons' fault, but um, looking at, uh, at all things considered here, um, he's only my number four for Whiplash. My number four is Ethan Hawke. And it's not that I dislike this performance. I just don't think he gets a grand amount to do, which I think is also very obvious next to Patricia Arquette in the movie. Um, so while he's good, I don't think it in any way like tests his acting ability or is impressive. My number four is Robert Duvall. Um, better luck next time. <laughs> My number three is Edward Norton for Birdman. Um, I think Edward Norton's quite good here uh, playing a, an exaggerated version of himself. Um, if that's what we want to call it. Uh, he's pretty funny, and he has his uh, sort of cringy moments that I think kind of work looking at the character, even if they are pretty repulsive as a viewer. But, yeah, he's only my number three for Birdman. Yeah, my number three is uh, J.K. Simmons. Like I said, I think it's a good performance. It's just very one note. It doesn't really go anywhere. Um, and I... You know, I knew that he could do this the moment I started the movie. <laughs> Nicole and I agree because J.K. Simmons is also my number three. Um, <laughs> for everything she just said, um, like I said earlier, we we've if we've seen Oz or Spider-Man, we've essentially seen this J.K. Simmons performance before. So 
don't love it. Don't hate it. It's very middle of the road. So I think three is a pretty fair ranking. My runner up is Ethan Hawke for Boyhood. Um, I really dig what he's doing here. Uh, it's a supernaturalistic performance. It's a very believable character that he brings a lot of warmth and positive energy to. Um, another actor could have played this uh, poorly and created a character that the audience didn't like. But um, Hawk sort of owns this character, takes ownership of it, and I dig that. Uh, but Ruffalo is uh, doing some more interesting work for me in Foxcatcher. Um, he's the thing that um, kept me the most emotionally interested in what I was watching on screen. Um, I have really mixed feelings about the execution of the film overall, um, but I have no real problems with Ruffalo's uh, performance here. Um, I think the movie needed him and um, he proves why. So uh, Mark Ruffalo is my winner for Foxcatcher. So my runner up is Robert Duvall. I think I'm also a little bit biased here in that I'm always impressed whenever an older actor can still give a performance like this that is so layered. Um, I believe at the time he was the oldest nominee in this category. I don't know if that's still true six years later, but uh, you know, I think he's doing really good work and he's Robert Duvall and uh, it's of the roles here i want to say it's one of the more difficult ones um but for all the reasons that i've already been stated <laughs> mark ruffalo is my winner i think he is for one thing it's the only one of these five characters that i really give a damn about and he manages to make that happen despite i think that not being something that's necessarily in the script um i think that he does that with his own charisma and what he and his choices that he's making um, and I think that the film really needs him. I think that without him doing what he is, the film wouldn't work for me at all. And he also, of these actors, is um, the most the one that I can't imagine any other actor playing the role and doing it as well. So Mark Ruffalo wins for me. My instant reaction to both of you is who is what, what is why, <laughs> is where, <laughs> get out of here. Um, Okay, my runner-up is going to be Ethan Hawke, which means I'm giving the win to Edward Norton, starting with Hawke, the most likable thing about Boyhood. Um, like I said, I, I he really took a character that could have been so gross and just you leave hating and really made him human. Um, Norton, though, is pitch perfect in every manner, from the over-the-top hairiness of himself to the neuroticness of what a method actor is. Um, I don't believe in method acting. I don't think it's a real thing. It's not acting. Acting is being able to create emotion from cut or from action to cut. Um, so I kind of eat this up with a spoon because I just find this to be why method acting isn't real and why it's so ridiculous. And I'm here for it. Um, Norton, over the top, my winner. I'm sticking with it. I like uh, that our rankings are literally flipped from each other. <laughs> exactly. <right>. My five <laughs> is your winner. <laughs> <Like>. <laughs> and vice versa. <laughs> All right. As a review for your lead actors of 2014, you had Michael Keaton in Birdman, Eddie Redmayne in The Theory of Everything, Steve Carell in Foxcatcher, Bradley Cooper in American uh, Hustle Gangster, Sniper, American Man <laughs> something. And then Benedict Cumberbatch in The Fear of Everything. Um, number five is Steve Carell. Number one, I got to say that I wouldn't put him in lead, so there's category fraud, and therefore I'm disqualifying him from this race. That's number one. And number two, 
like Ruffalo, he's just not memorable. I mean, there isn't anything here for me to 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 get close to or to care about. So, um, Nicole, where are you at? Where are your number five? If people don't know that my number five is Bradley Cooper, they haven't been listening. Uh, <laughs> terrible performance in a terrible movie. And I don't know why he was nominated. So he gets the last spot on my ballot. Yeah, same. Bradley Cooper is number five. Uh, go home, Bradley. You're drunk. <laughs> number four is Bradley Cooper saved by category fraud. Number three. For, I'm sorry. Number four for you, Nicole. Jesus Christ. <laughs> You were like, let's move on. I was like, I'm just banging it out at this point. (laughs) Um, I'm so sorry. My number four is Michael Keaton. This performance just doesn't click with me. It also might be that, like, I'm not uh, hugely familiar with all of Michael Keaton's work. Um, I think that Birdman is largely a film that, like, will not work unless you are totally familiar with the filmographies of the actors in it, or at least know a lot about them. Um, And that's RE both Edward Norton and Michael Keaton. Uh, It just doesn't work for me. The whole film doesn't work for me. He doesn't work for me in it really. I don't think he's bad by any means, but I, there's nothing in it that appeals to me. My number four is Benedict Cumberbatch for the imitation game. Um, I want to like a movie about Alan Turing more. I want to like this performance more, but it's just not there for me. Um, So unfortunately, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch is only number four for the imitation game. Now to my number three, because now, you know, numbers. Um, Eddie Redmayne, he won this. This is middle of the road. So like uh, J.K. Simmons, both winners, are fine at three for me. So, Nicole, what about you? My number three is Benedict Cumberbatch. I give it to him as a sort of, it's okay, Benedict. It's not your fault this movie wasn't good. Um, I like what he's doing, but I'm not super impressed by it. But it does work for me, and I think he has uh, good chemistry with the other actors in the cast. Um, my number three is Eddie Redmayne for The Theory of Everything. Um, this movie's not my cup of tea. Um, even this type of performance is not exactly what I usually go for but um i can't deny how technically precise and specific um redmayne is so i'll give credit where credit to do there but um i'm more into um the other two that i have remaining so eddie redmayne's only number three for the theory of everything y'all better stop with having steve corral this high i know god <laughs> damn neither of you are about to give him an oscar for some creepy ass running i'm gonna hang up on both of you i swear to god <laughs> um Ooh, ooh. Okay. Um, number two run up is Michael Keaton, which means I'm giving "Come in My Pussy Snatch" the win here. Um, Keaton is fantastic. He's really fun here in Birdman, but Benedict is Benedict really sold me on my last rewatch of The Imitation Game. He wasn't my winner on Oscar night. He was my winner at like revisiting it. Um, Keaton was my winner on Oscar night. Benedict though is just heartbreaking despite the material, you know, Nicole, you mentioned earlier, I, you love an actor who can do really good work in a pretty bad film. And I think this is the purest definition of it. Um, yeah, I got to give it to Benedict and now I'm literally holding my breath for the both of you. So Nicole? <laughs> You'll be happy to hear uh, that Steve Carell is my number two. <laughs> I don't give him the win, but 
this is by far the performance that I was the most surprised by in terms of being like, I didn't know he could do that. Um, which always goes a long way for me whenever I think that someone has gone above and beyond their normal work. Uh, he plays this very creepy dude very well. He walks the line. It could have been a very campy performance and he keeps it grounded in reality. Really worked for me. But obviously, I really like Eddie Redmayne's performance. Um, I think that he does really well i don't think the movie honestly lives up to his performance but i think that he's very very good both on a like emotional acting level and on a physical acting level uh it's definitely of the five also the one the performance that has stuck with me the most um and i know that i'm like probably the only person on film twitter who will defend this win uh valiantly but i do (laughs) My runner-up is Steve Carell for Foxcatcher. Um, I am low-key obsessed with whatever the fuck he's doing on screen, anytime he's <laughs> on screen. Um, I don't know why. I just, I'm into it for some god-unknown reason. And I'm okay with him being in this category. Um, he has enough presence and enough to do, and we're given impressions of his background and all this other stuff. And I'm okay with him being in... Uh, the lead category, even though I understand why people say he should probably be in supporting. But he's not my winner anyway, so I'm not going to, you know, sweat too much about it, because uh, I do give this to Michael Keaton. Um, I really love this Michael Keaton performance. Um, I am familiar with uh, Keaton's other work. Uh, I, I really like that Nicole mentioned that, because I, I have a feeling it might be a factor in why I like this movie. I kind of grew up with Keaton's Batman films and his other films from, you know, the 90s and all that. And so seeing him here in this context, in Birdman, um, it was really cool seeing this side of him and seeing the movie play into um, this facet of his life. And um, I think he does it really well. Um, I love this roller coaster that we're on with him as everything is falling apart, uh, this play, his life, his reputation, everything. And um, I really dig it. So uh, Michael Keaton's my winner in the lead category. Well, as a recap, I gave it to Benedict Cumberbatch and Edward Norton. And I gave it to Michael Keaton and Mark Ruffalo. And I gave it to Eddie Redmayne and Mark Ruffalo. What an episode. Yeah. <laughs> Nicole, you have been delightful. I'm, I, I was, told you there would be hot takes, and I brought hot takes. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um. Nicole, where can people find you on social media? I am on Twitter and Instagram and Letterboxd and basically all over the internet at Nicole Ackman 16. And your podcast? Yes. Yeah, I'm also... (laughs) God, you're better at knowing these things than I am. Um, You can also find my work over at Next Best Picture, and then you can also find my podcast with my friend Maggie, where we talk about period films from the perspective of people who have degrees in history, but also are somewhat involved in the film industry in some way, at HGATM Podcast, which is History Girls at the Movies. And if you ever want to discuss your love of American Sniper, Nicole runs their (laughs) East Coast chapter of the fan club. (laughs) Oh, definitely. (laughs) I don't even know if you're East Coast. You might be like West Coast or something. I am. I am East Coast. Yeah. No, I, if anyone would like to talk to me about how American Sniper is one of the worst movies ever to be nominated for an Oscar, uh, please come chat. (laughs) (laughs) All right. 
on the count of three, we're going to give a big uh, goodbye. One, two, three. Goodbye. Goodbye.